follow along this morning. We're going to be continuing in in the survey of apologetics that we've been looking at over the past several weeks. And I want to go ahead and say at the front of this lesson and tonight's lesson, both of which will continue to, to look at that, these are lessons that take me out of my comfort zone. As you've maybe noticed over the past several months, I, I have thoroughly enjoyed digging into a, a book and, and looking at what that book has to reveal to us. But um, as we look at these lessons, they're going to take us away a little bit from that. In fact, uh, we're, we're going to spend a lot more time outside of the Bible than we are in it in both of these lessons. And so that takes me out of my comfort zone, and it might take you a little bit out of your comfort zone as well. So I ask that you uh, be patient with me and, and that we listen uh, carefully to the things that we talk and think about this morning and this afternoon, and we weigh them as to how we can use this information to glorify God, because that's our purpose here. Our purpose is to lift Him up and to magnify His name, and that is our purpose with apologetics as well. When we consider uh, apologetics, which is simply an ability to defend Christianity, to defend the Bible, it is with our, our greatest hope not to be right, but to magnify a righteous God. And so that's what I want to continue doing this morning. <clears throat> One thing that we've noticed over the past couple of weeks is that as we approach these topics, we must first approach them with a proper understanding of both faith and presupposition or biases. Faith is not simply just believing something without seeing. It is a little more than that. It is a conviction of things not seen, yes, but it is the ability to make a statement and trust in that statement, such as God is. And God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. That is a statement spoken of on faith and and followed in faith based upon the evidence that has been given to us to be able to believe and trust in that and to be able to reason through that evidence. If we lack either of these, if we lack evidence, if we lack reasoning, We are blindly following in gullibility. And that is not what we're talking about as we talk about apologetics. Secondly, we noted that everyone who comes to the Lord, everyone who comes to the the topic of Christianity, whether they come to it believing or come to it in, in attack, they are coming with biases, with presuppositions. We all have them. Biases and assumptions based off our current knowledge and our challenge to ourselves is to ensure that we are not allowing our own biases to sway our opinions to, uh, about the truth, that we are examining it openly and honestly, but also to help other people to overcome their biases and to consider things that might hinder them from seeing the truth whenever it comes to studying the Word of God together. If we can keep these two thoughts in mind, it will assist us in fulfilling our task at hand. And as I said last week, our task at hand when it comes to apologetics is not about bringing and converting souls to Christ. You might think of that statement for a minute and just ponder on it. Is that not what our purpose is? Not when it comes to apologetics. Our task is to give a defense for the hope that is in us to be able to to explain to people why I believe in Christ. Explain to people why I'm following Christ as my Lord. And whenever we can bring the evidence to them and allow them to reason through it and to think through it, we can hope that they will come to have a reasonable faith in the Lord as well. That's our task, is to bring them the good news, to bring them the truth, and let them 
make a decision for themselves if they will follow after it or not. And so that brings us to the next part of this series, which is going to consider how we interpret a lot of this evidence. But there's some things I want you to remember. Number one, critics do not argue that the evidence does not exist. I think sometimes we, we kind of back ourselves into a corner because we, we treat our faith, like we talked about in some of those first lessons, as, as something that's, that's kind of blind. It's something that doesn't have a lot of substance to it. But it actually does have a lot of substance. And even the critics of Christianity understand that and they know that. They say there is a lot of evidence out there. They simply argue the way that we interpret that evidence is incorrect. And again, that's based off of usually a bias or a presumption that anything that has to do with miracles, if you take all the evidence there is and you, uh, you associate it with miracles, then those things are nonsense and, and that can't possibly be the right interpretation. So they don't argue that there's not evidence. They agree there's much evidence. They just simply argue that we're not interpreting it right. So how do we make a case then and allow the evidence to speak for itself? How do we make a case that allows the evidence to, to over, overcome somebody's biases? That's something that I want to do this morning. What we'll do is look at one particular event in which almost all of this evidence circulates around, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Specifically, the historicity, the historical authenticity of this occurrence in man's history. To do this, we have to consider the evidences. We have to reason through them, and we have to come to the most probable and the most reasonable conclusion for how all of these facts fit together. Now, I've said before, the scholarly approach to that, if we want to be scholars in this, it is not to be skeptical. We talked about this last week. Skepticism and, scholar and, and, and being a scholar do not go hand in hand. Scholars cannot be skeptics. Scholars have committed themselves to looking at the evidence and following it where it leads. Now, that doesn't say that sometimes they are biased, which leads them into error. But if the evidence does not allow for a conclusion, then a scholar will reject that evidence. We talked about that last week. We looked at that in detail. And so for us as well, if evidence does not lend itself to a conclusion, then I must reject it. But if it does lend itself to that conclusion, then I must, I must at least reason further in it, dismissing any notions of assumption that I may have had before. And that leads me to this quote by a man named George Ladd. In his book, The New Testament and Criticism, he wrote this, <clears throat> The resurrection is consistent with the known historical facts. Therefore, faith is not a leap in the dark in defiance of facts and evidences, but it is consistent with known facts and rests upon witnesses. This is what I want to look at this morning and a little bit this afternoon. There is so much historical evidence that even the most critical of all scholars who will deny the deity of Christ will accept as saying that is historically reliable. That did happen. I do believe that. That means that whenever we go to help people and when we go to study with people, we don't have to rely upon um, messages that maybe have, have worked on us in the past, um, thoughts that we have, we have used in the past with, with maybe people that already have a little bit of a belief. You know, one, one thing that a friend of mine told me one time, when I asked him, we were talking about God, and he said, I believe God because that oak tree right there. 
He said, you know, I planted, I, I remember when that oak tree was planted in the ground. I remember when it was a little seed and it germinated and it grew and now it's a mighty oak. I believe in God because of that oak tree right there. And I do not discount that at all. Romans tells us the, the in nature, the, the creation itself displays to us, manifests to us the invisible power of God. I believe that 100%. And his argument that he makes, I believe, is useful in the right time, in the right circumstance. But here's the problem. It's subjective as well. It's subjective because what he's saying is, I believe this is what caused that to happen. And I believe it too. But you know, critics have their own belief on what happened there. They believe that something else happened. They believe that when that seed went in the ground, that, that water came upon it and fed it, and that sunlight was able to, to provide it what it needs when, through germination, and, and, and that it grew through, uh, through, through the, the process that science has, has discovered leads to these things to grow. They have their own reasoning for that. And so what I want us to be aware of in these lessons is that we don't have to rely upon subjective I believe, I think statements. We can find common ground even with some of the most staunchest atheistic critics that there are, we can find things that we all agree on. We can find facts that are known and facts that are accepted. And some of these facts that we'll consider, uh, facts this morning that we'll consider, are facts like the, the death of Jesus on the cross. Jesus died by crucifixion. <clears throat> His burial is not contested. His tomb uh, and it being empty on the third day. The disciples, uh, the, the, the mannerisms around them, the fact that they grieved at His death, they believed that they saw Him alive again. They went through transformations which led so many to die for that belief. The resurrection message is the center of the preaching of the church in the first century. And the people that hear that, and the people that, that change their lives, James, a skeptical brother of Jesus Christ, who, who later becomes a, a pillar of the church. Paul, not only a skeptic, but a, a persecutor of the church, believing that he had seen the resurrected Jesus. Changes, makes huge changes. These are all facts, and they are what's called the minimal facts. Minimal facts. Now, it's not that they're minimized in importance. In fact, they're some of the most important facts. But they're called the minimal facts because it's the very foundation of what is agreed upon as the legend of Jesus. Now, please be aware when I say that, I'm not saying that Jesus is a legend. But in the, in, in the world today, the thought that there was a man and he grew beyond his, his actual abilities and grew beyond his actual life to become this great legend, this myth that eventually the whole church and religion itself is modeled itself after. That belief is founded in the same foundational facts that, we, that our belief is founded in as well. And so what that means is we have common ground with people that are, that are critical to the Bible. And we can ask them, let's look at those foundational truths together and consider what they mean. I would like to do that this morning. I would like to show, based off of evidence, that it is far more reasonable to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and that is the truth, than, than what has historically been presented as the, the possibilities for what led to a legend. And what I also want us to show is that in doing that, that has implications in our lives. And you see, what makes this a valid way to approach apologetics is because sometimes... 
we don't want to start there. Sometimes what we would rather start with is the infallibility of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture, all of which are vital to understanding God and all of which are necessary for us to, to have a better appreciation and knowledge of His authority, for, for sure. But those, those situations and those studies can be hindered by people who are biased against miracles, by people who are biased against the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it can lead us down we, uh, rabbit trails and into the weeds that sometimes are hard to overcome. And so if we will start with what we can agree upon and go from there to show that the evidence that we have supports a belief like the belief that we have, that in and of itself has an implication that says, if this is true, what does that mean about the words that Jesus spoke? If this is true, what does that mean about His claim to be the Son of God? If this is true, how does that impact what Scripture says in other places, recording the things that those who came before Him said? You can see that maybe when, when we start with someone who is, is a little hesitant, when we start with someone who is just downright opposed, when we start with what we can agree upon, we don't immediately slam a door for our conversations to lend themselves to greater and greater views of, of the truth of Scripture and the authority that it has in it. And so let's do that this morning. Let's begin with the facts, the evidences that we have, specifically revolving around the historical authenticity of the, resur of, of the, of, of the cross. <clears throat> Number one is that Jesus died on the cross. This is a fact that, that will not be, be debated by many who, who know much about anything. There's, there are those that are noted skeptics. A famous one is one by the name of John Crossan. John Dominic Crossan denies the deity of Jesus. He does not believe Jesus is the Son of God. So that is not the case. He believes in the legend of Jesus. This man, this man just grew beyond his actual life. But I want you to listen to what John had to say when was asked about the crucifixion. The fact of the crucifixion. He said the fact of the crucifixion is as sure as anything historically can ever be. Anything historically can ever be. We can know for a fact that this Jesus of Nazareth was crucified in the first century. And very few will deny that. They will, they will firmly agree, yes, I, I believe that this character existed and that he died on a cross. A man by the name of Tacitus, we'll talk more about him tonight, but he is an enemy of Christianity. He is biased against it. He did not appreciate the Christians. In fact, he was loyal to Rome and he viewed Christians as an abomination. But he wrote this, Christus, which is Latin uh, for Christ, Christus was executed in the Principate of Tiberius by the governor Pontius Pilate. When we read that, when we read that Jesus was executed, number one, we can with, with much certainty realize that what he's talking about here is crucifixion. That is, the, that is the means of execution in the days of the first century that was most notably used. And what we find is right off the bat, a, an, a, a fact that we can all agree on Jesus died on a cross. Okay. So what? what is that? How does that help our argument? 
Well, one, what we can begin to do is we can begin to show people that, hey, you actually agree with some of the things that, that we are talking about. There's things in Scripture that, that we're saying that you can say amen to. In John chapter 19, verse 6, it's talking about Pontius Pilate. And John 19, 16 says, So he then handed him over then to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote on an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. We can start out there and say, look, not everything that we're talking about in Scripture you actually disagree with. We all can agree. Jesus died on the cross. And their response to that might be, yes, I believe that, but that does not prove that He is the Son of God. That does not prove His claims to be the Christ. Lots of people died on crosses in the first century. And to that we must say, absolutely, you're absolutely right. It doesn't prove that. But we can agree upon it. Let's start there. Let's start there with that fact and let's continue. The next fact that we want to consider is that the disciples who followed Jesus believed they had seen Him arisen, alive again, after He had died. Now you might notice something about the way that that's worded. And it's worded in a very particular way. I said that they believed that they saw Him. The statement that I'm making is not they did see Him arisen, the statement that we are making, the fact that we are bringing to, to, our agree, uh, uh, to the case that we can agree on is that they believed that they saw Him alive again. Now, now, why might we do that? Why might we bring it up in this manner? Why might we say the disciples believed they had seen Him alive again? Doesn't that give an opportunity for someone who disagrees with us just to say, of course they did. They believed, but they were wrong. They believed, but they believed a lie. Yes, that gives them that opportunity. That opens the door for them to bring up their own reasoning. That's what we want people to do. We want to present the evidence and say, what do you think? And they say, okay, we, do, we believe you. They believed they saw him alive again, but they were wrong. He was dead. They did not see him alive again. But the statement of their belief in the resurrection actually speaks volumes considering what happened based upon that belief. The church is born out of that belief. The church is born out of the preaching of the eyewitnesses that said the resurrection happened, we believe, we saw it. Once more, that is a fact that is undeniable. There is no one who, who can consider history, who can look at the evidence and say, no, the disciples didn't believe it. Yes, they did. But history shows that they did. They also can look at it and say that that is a fact that was centered in the message of the church. When they went and told other people, they were telling them first and foremost, primarily, we saw Jesus rise again. So their belief made its way into their message. And one more fact that cannot be denied is that not only did it make its way into that message, the message made its way into the hearts of many, many others. And it grew. Those who believed that they had seen the resurrection of Jesus, who had died but was now again, that message went into the hearts and it grew. And the early church took those beliefs 
And what we want to consider is the level at which they believed them. Their belief was so intense. Their conviction was so that when they're told, we believe we've seen Jesus alive again after His death, that claim is handed on to someone else and they take that claim and whenever they're told, you're going to deny that, you're going to curse that, or I'm going to kill you, they chose to die. And again, there's arguments made against this. Just because someone chose to die doesn't make it true. And again, we can look at them and say, you're right. But it does illustrate a point. It illustrates that the church believed. The church was so convicted in their belief that they were willing to die for it. They, they were so bought in that there was not anything that man was going to be able to do to persuade them away from that belief. In fact, a man by the name of Origen, Origen of Alexandria, he wrote this in the 3rd century, uh, near the end of the the 3rd century, in a book or in a a work titled Contra Celsum. says, But a clear and unmistakable proof of the fact I hold to be the undertaking of His disciples who devoted themselves to the teaching of a doctrine which was intended with danger of, to human life, a doctrine which they would not have taught with such courage had they invented the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The point that he's making is the men that taught this message. And when he says the disciples, he's not talking about the disciples of the third century. He's talking about the early disciples. He's talking about the disciples of, 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 that followed Jesus. He says they would not have have taught this doctrine whenever you base the weight of human danger that comes with it if they had fabricated the story. He goes on to say, at the same time, not only these early uh, disciples not only prepared others to despise death, but were themselves the first to manifest their disregard for its terror. They weren't afraid to die for what they were preaching. And they did. They died. All of them died, save just one. One of the early apostles, John, lives to old age, but traditionally we know that all the other apostles died. And what Origen is pointing out in this post, or in the post, there we go, in, in, in this article that he wrote, the point that he's making is liars make terrible martyrs. A martyr is someone who will die for their faith. And he's saying liars will not do that. Liars don't die for their lie. And one more time, I'm gonna, we're going to recognize that the answer to this is going to be, from those who are critical, that happens all the time. People die believing a lie all the time. You, you, you look at some of the other religions that people die for. When you look at some of this radical Islam that, that are, people believe that if they, if they commit these terrible acts that they, that they will be rewarded in heaven. And so they are dying. And you're, you're saying that's true? Well, we say, no, we don't, we don't. We believe they're believing in error. Well, that just proves your point is wrong. What about those that are, that are part of all of these cults? When Halley's Comet came by, these people believed that they would be rewarded in some way with their, through their death. And so they all died. Do you believe that that happened? Are you saying that just because they believed it enough to give their life, it makes it true? Of course not. Of course that's not what we're saying. But what I want us to recognize, that when the conversation gets there, 
When the conversation gets to a point where they're saying, look at all of these other people who have believed unto death, but we recognize that those are lies, that those are errors. What are you telling me about the disciples believing that they'd seen Him again and that they died for that belief that makes it so true? The point is, whoever we're talking with, however we're having this conversation, they've missed the point then. Because what we did not say is that believers died. What we said was the early disciples believed that they had seen Him again. And that's different than me dying for my faith. The point is not that believers died. It's that the eyewitnesses died. And that is drastically different. You might tell me something today. You might share something with me. And and because of my relationship with you, because of my love for you, and because of my knowledge that you are a trustworthy person, I I will believe that is truth. And even if someone threatens me with, with, with physical harm to deny that, that what you said was true and to call you a liar, I might say, nope, I, I, I cannot do that. They are honest. They are trustworthy. I have to believe that it is the truth, even if you're going to hurt me. But that's different than what's happening here. Because the early disciples, the apostles, the 500, They weren't told that Jesus was risen again and therefore they believed. They believed that they had seen Him. Not that somebody had told them. They believed that with their own eyes they had seen Him three days after His death. And that's the belief that they died for. Now that is drastically different. Because people who die for their faith today are not the same as the apostles. People who die for their faith today are people who have examined the evidence, yes, and they've believed based off the testimony of others, but the apostles were the testimony. And if there had been a lie that had led to all of this, that point right there is where it would have broken down. The people who had fabric, they would have had to have been the ones to fabricate the lie. So it's not just believers have died for this. That's powerful enough, but that's not really proving anything. It's the eyewitnesses died for this. The eyewitnesses were willing to say, what I have seen with my own two eyes causes me to believe that Jesus has been risen from the dead, and I will not be swayed away from that, even by the horrors and the atrocities that were done against the people of God. That's fact number two. Jesus died on the cross... And those disciples who followed Him, they believed they saw His resurrection with their own eyes. Fact number three starts to look at how that affected some of those people. Paul's radical transformation. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul records essentially the Gospel. The Gospel account as it was delivered to him. Now, I want to begin by asking and causing us to think about this. Can we use that? Can we use 1 Corinthians 15? When we're talking to someone that's already shown a bias against the Bible because of miracles, because of of their, their own personal beliefs that these things just can't be true, is the Bible really going to answer any of their questions? And what I want us to know is, yeah, we, we can use the Bible. I, and I'm not suggesting just by our our lack of, of, of dominant use of it this morning that it's that it's not a part of our arsenal, even against skeptics. It is. But we need to understand some things about it. One, 
1 Corinthians is a very special letter that we have, that we have in our Bibles. The writings of Paul are, are agreed upon as very important to the church. But 1 Corinthians 15 goes beyond that because 1 Corinthians is one of the most verified writings in the New Testament. Out of all of the documents that we have that have made it through and, and survived, and we have none of the original autographs, we have none of the original writings where Paul signed with his own hand, we don't have those, but of all the writings that we do have that were survived, the copies of copies, none are more agreed upon than 1 Corinthians. Some have tried to discredit the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, by saying that they were written much later than the first century. They've tried to push them back off into the second century so that they can say, look, they're not really eyewitness accounts because they were written so late. Look, they're, <coughs> excuse me, they're, they're copies of one another because a lot of them seem to say the same thing. So somebody must have copied what somebody else had to say. And we're going to talk just a little bit more about that this afternoon, but that, that's not the case of what was happening. But you know, even though that there's those skeptics, there's those disputes over the Gospels, no one disputes the book of 1 Corinthians. There's simply too much evidence to show us when it was written, who wrote it, who the recipients were. It is considered to be a fact that Paul is the author of this letter, and it is considered to be a fact that it was written around the middle of the 50s. So about 54, 55 A.D., that means that it is a factual, historical account or letter that we can go and read that was written within 20 years of the, of the death of Jesus. It dates back to the events that are happening. And also agreed upon is that in this document, Paul is detailing the gospel. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15 if you're not already there. I want us to consider some of the things that he's saying in it as he talks about things such as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the effect that it had on those who belonged to God. I'd also point out before we read this that we do a little, just, just as a side note, maybe a point of interest more than anything, is we do a little bit of backwards math, knowing that the book is written around 54 A.D. We do a little bit of backwards math and follow... Paul, through his missionary journeys, what we find out is uh, on the, the way to Damascus, when Paul receives his vision, when he believes that he has seen the risen Jesus for himself, that would put that somewhere around the mid-30s, you know, 35, maybe as late as 39. That means it happened within a year to five years of Jesus' death. A side point, but Paul is very, very closely connected to the events, which makes him a very good source of historical reliability. So let's see what this historical reliable Paul had to say in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, 
but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Now here's some things that we need to consider when we read that. When we understand what's going on here, we understand that this is a historical document that we can all agree, even with skeptics and critics, we can agree is written around the time of Christ. We're talking about a person. Uh, we're, we're talking about a person who believes he has seen the risen Jesus. Again, that's, that's a fact that we can all agree on. He believes that. He thinks, he believes that he saw Jesus alive again, and he taught others to believe the same way. What does that prove? It proves a lot when we consider the background of this person. He was someone who was converted to this. And had he been incorrect, the argument is, by many critics, the people that preached this, were, they were tall tales. They would stretch a little bit. And every time it got a little bit bigger and changed a little bit, and the story just kept getting bigger and bigger. Paul is saying there were 500 eyewitnesses. If there's something I'm saying that is incorrect, how many of them does it take to correct it? And he said out of that 500 that you have to choose from, almost all of them are still with us today. That's what he's telling the, the Corinthians. He's saying, you can believe my message because this is not just a legend. If this was, if this was me just spinning yarn and making things uh, blown out of proportion, there were 500 people that could correct that. There were checks and balances that were installed already within 20 years of the event and the result of those checks and balances, the result of those eyewitnesses, and the result of their, their changes in their lives and their convictions and their beliefs were leading other people to be taught the same thing. And when you can think about Paul, the other argument is maybe Paul did it for glory. Someone who thinks that needs to learn a little bit about Paul. 1 Corinthians is a great place to go to to learn that. Because in the book of 1 Corinthians, we find out that Paul received anything but glory for his faith. Paul was a smart man. Paul was trained under Gamaliel. Paul was the equivalent of what we would call a lawyer. He is on the fast track to success. And he is doing everything he can to squash this, this disgusting group of people that are following Christ. That's Paul. And Paul believes that he sees Jesus alive again. And Paul allows that belief to transform his life in such a way that he turns his back on every aspect of his life. He turns his back on the things, the convictions that he held, the, the, um, the biases and the assumptions that he had prior to coming to Christ. He says that stuff is rubbish. He says the things that at one time were valuable to him, his standing amongst the, 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 the Pharisees and the Hebrews. He says, that stuff's not important. In fact, what does he receive from all of this? He receives, he receives stonings. Penalty of, of death being placed upon him. He is fed to the, the wild animals in Ephesus. He is shipwrecked on multiple occasions. He is constantly without a home. Hungered and thirst. Cold at fear of robbers. And, and, and despite all of this, the church that he's preaching to, the people that he's trying to tell 
they think that he's weak. They think that he, of all the people, that we're not sure Paul's the one that really looks like a superstar speaker. Paul lost everything and was willing to lose even more because he believed that he saw Jesus. Because he believed that Jesus was risen from the dead. The transformation of Paul goes beyond goes beyond what we might just say is someone who spread a legend. And we have to come to conclusions as what we're going to do with that information. Did Paul give everything up because he just wanted to tell a lie? Because he just wanted to spread a rumor? Was Paul insane? There was nothing in his life factually, historically, to indicate any of those things. But yet, we see huge changes happen around the same time that he purports that his belief that he had seen Jesus rise again. That's fact number three. The last fact we're going to look at this morning is probably one that intrigues me the most. And that is the fact of the empty tomb. It intrigues me because it's a fact that demands an answer. And it demands an answer that historically skeptics have never been able to provide. Jesus died on a cross. We can agree on that, yes. But Jesus was still just a man, just like all the other men who died on crosses. That's, that's one answer they might give. Well, the disciples, they believed that they saw Him alive again. Yes, they did. They believed that, but you know what? They were mistaken. Or maybe they were just all telling lies. Well, what about Paul? Or what about James? Or what about these other people that made huge changes in their lives? Well, there might be many reasons. They might go to say, well, you know what? They were delusional. They, they, they had suffered from insanity. But this last fact, the empty tomb demands more than just a careless response. Responses like, well, maybe the tomb wasn't really empty. Maybe they just went to the wrong tomb. Well, guess what? That, historically, is not going to be the case. In Mark chapter 15, in verse 47 we find that some of the disciples that followed Him also followed the people that buried Him. In Mark 15, verse 47, speaking about Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph, says they were looking on to see where He was laid. The tomb of Christ was an observed tomb. We read in Scripture it was a new tomb. It was also an observed tomb. They knew where He was at. So they said, well, maybe... Maybe his, uh, his disciples stole him away. That's a claim that actually dates back to the Bible. The Jews were the first ones to make this argument. They say, that well, we're going to tell people that the disciples came and stole him. But in Matthew 28, or Matthew 28, verse 13, that's where they give that instruction. But in Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66, before they even give that instruction, they take measures to ensure that never happens. On the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. The, 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 the Jews in that day were aware of where this was leading. 
He's been telling everybody he's going to raise from the dead. We are going to take action to make sure that never happens. We'll put a guard out. We will put <clears throat> a seal on the stone. There is no way that his disciples are getting in here and doing anything with that body. And what I like about this fact then, what I liked about the fact of the empty tomb, as I said, it demands more than just a carelessly thrown together answer. We, we can't just say, well, well, this happened. But unfortunately, that hasn't stopped people from trying to do so. Theories such as, well, the body never made it to the grave. The body never made it to the tomb. They were on their way, and, and you know what? They just decided to pitch him in a shallow grave, cover him up with some sticks, and then, and then dogs took care of the rest. That is a popular theory. That is a popular theory that holds no grounds whatsoever. But again, it's based off of an assumption and a bias that says, I can't accept anything that, that can possibly lead to a miracle. Others have claimed that there was a great grief in the disciples. Now, at least this one has some plausibility to it. The disciples were so grieved that they just really wanted to see Him alive again. And so, because that's what the body wants, that's what the body got. They saw Him because they were so grieved that it caused them, caused them to hallucinate. And you know, I would say to that, if it was talking about one or maybe two disciples, yeah, that's a plausible explanation. But over 500 disciples not only see them, one of them reports touching Him, seeing the wounds and touching the wounds. Again, that, that, that's, not, that's not an answer. But here's what's interesting to me. Here's what's interesting. When someone gives an alternative theory, here's our theory, the empty tomb. Our theory is Jesus raised from the dead. That's our theory. When someone gives an alternative theory, I believe this is what happened. You know what they're doing? They are admitting that something happened. Something happened and I, I don't know what happened. But i got to give an answer for it. When an atheist claims Jesus was simply buried somewhere where those who cared didn't know and those who knew didn't care. You know what they're saying? They're saying Jesus wasn't in the tomb. The tomb was definitely interesting. And that brings us to the last point about this fact. The fact is not that they believed when they saw an empty tomb. The empty tomb proved nothing to these disciples. In fact, when they are told the tomb is empty, they don't believe. When they go and see the tomb is empty, they still don't believe. That is not why they believed. They believed because they saw. They believed because they believed they saw the risen Jesus, not because the tomb was empty. What's fascinating about the empty tomb is because they're making their argument and nobody could go and prove them wrong. Jews knew where the tomb was. Rome knew where the tomb was. The, 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 the enemies of this, this belief system knew, and now the belief system is saying, we've seen Him. We believe we saw Him alive again. And what better time to squash this now than to just go parade the body out and say, no, you didn't. He's still dead. They couldn't. They couldn't. Because the tomb was empty. It is not a proof of the resurrection, but it is a necessity of the resurrection. If the tomb was empty, there was nothing they could do to offer an explanation for why they believed to have seen Jesus risen again. We may all agree, <coughs> critics and believers alike, that Jesus died on the cross. We may all agree that His, His followers believed they saw Him. We may all agree that that message was central to the preaching of the church and that as the church grew, people died 
connected to that belief. But we have to give an explanation for why the tomb was empty. And there simply is no explanation that relies solely on first century historical evidence and is not marred by speculative biases against miracles except that all of this evidence, all the evidence that we've talked about this morning is leading us to one solid conclusion. It's leading us to the Jesus of the Bible. It's leading us to the cross. As I said earlier, that evidence has implications. It has evidence in how we move forward in our reality. If the claims were true, which all the evidence that we have looked at this morning to points to one logical explanation, which is yes, it is true, then Jesus the Nazarene joins a club of one. A club of men who taught that they were the Son of God and that they would die, and on the third day they would be resurrected, and when they suffered a public death, they also made a public appearance. There is hardly a point in human history that is more important than this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 15 that without the resurrection, faith is useless. It is vain. It is worthless and wasted. But in 2 Corinthians, he says that the resurrection is our hope for true life. Peter writes that it is through the resurrection we are born again to a living hope. The resurrection is evidence given as instrumental in accepting Jesus as Lord. He was declared Son of God, Romans chapter 1, verse 4, by the power of the resurrection. And throughout the book of Romans, Paul leans upon this to bring us to the, the necessary conclusion of this, of this fact. He says in Romans 1.16, the Gospel, the account of His life, the account of His death, burial, and resurrection is the power of God to save those who believe. In Romans 10.17, he says faith or conviction or trust comes from hearing, comes from examining the evidence. And hearing what? What evidence? The Word of Christ. And he says in verses 9-10, through 10, that evidence is intended to provoke us to recognize the truth about Him as the Son of God and confess Him as Lord. But accepting that the resurrection is the only reasonable explanation for the evidence, what we have also done is implied that the way we view Scriptures has to be different. It has to be different than we viewed them before. If we accept the resurrection as the 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 conclusion of all of this evidence, that means we accept Jesus as what He said He was, the Son of God. And accepting Jesus as the Son of God means that everything about His life and His words is authoritative and deserves our following. And that's what the truth is about all of these evidences. They have been recorded and they have been passed down and made sure to be made available for all mankind so that we can believe this one fact. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in believing in Him, we may have life in His name. There may be those here this morning who, based upon the evidences that they have been given, based upon the evidences from God's inspired Word, based upon the evidences of history, that they believe Jesus is the Son of God, but they have not allowed that belief to lead them to the next logical conclusion. We'll go back to Paul for a minute. When Paul believed... He was instructed to go and to, and, and to wait. 
And upon hearing the preaching of a man he'd never met before, he was met with this response. If you believe this is what you've, 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 you've come to this conclusion for, don't delay. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Paul made a choice to follow that based upon his belief that Jesus was the Son of God. And he made a choice to not just follow that command, but to change his life as much as, as any man ever possibly could. For so many of us, maybe we've already made that choice to follow Him in baptism, to repent of our sins and to give our lives to Him. But when we accept Jesus as the Son of God, we also accept that He's authoritative in everything in our life. And so if there is some way this morning that we can help you by coming to Him for the first time or by recognizing that the risen Savior is still the Son of God and He is still authoritative in my life, but I have allowed the world to draw my attention away from Him and back to it. We stand here ready to help. Whatever we can do, won't you please come forward as we stand and sing.